0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show... The address is OpenLine at EWTN.com.
1: Hey, happy Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. It is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line today, so we won't be taking your phone calls. But if you'd like to be a part of a future mailbag presentation, you can send us an email. Open line at EWTN.com. You can also give our regular studio line a call after 4 p.m. Central Time, and you can leave a message with your question. That number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host, is he is every Tuesday, Father Wade, Menezes, and... He's wearing his uh, bulletproof armor today because he's going to talk about fasting.
2: What an appropriate topic for Lent, right? Fasting. Do we mean only from food? Do we mean food products only or non-food products only? Is it something we give up in the negative? Is it something we do in the positive? What's all this fasting business? Well, fasting is a form of self-denial or self-deprivation, strong word, uh, that deepens our appreciation of and longing for the food we really need. Jesus Christ, leading us to the Father in the Holy Spirit, our Trinitarian Godhead. The reason why Christ's disciples do not fast in Matthew 9, verses 14 and 15, is because they have given themselves over to Jesus, who is their food. But we fast in order to seek him day after day and to desire to know his ways evermore, especially during this liturgical season of Lent. We fast so that this Lent, Christ will become our all, even beyond the source and summit of the Christian life, that is to say, the receiving of the most Holy Eucharist, which is the gift par excellence of Christ uh, leaving us, following his ascension into heaven until he comes again, the, the beauty of the Most Holy Eucharist. No longer ordinary bread and wine at the words of consecration, but really, truly, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we can receive him up to twice daily, provided the second time is a full Mass, but here's the thing. What about those hours in between? We're still seeking Jesus, even after his sacramental presence uh, leaves us, after about 15 minutes or so, after reception of Holy Communion. So, Jesus is my all. I want to continue looking looking for him, making him a part of my life, leading me to the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? So this is why we fast, to keep that vision alive, and we do so especially during Lent. Regarding days of fasting and abstinence uh, and penance, Jack, it's it's worth saying this from the USCCB, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday are both obligatory days of both fasting and abstinence for Catholics. In addition, Fridays during Lent are obligatory days of abstinence. Um, All other Fridays of the year, some 45 of them, are to be observed as days of penitential observance, where you take on something that's appropriate for yourself. Uh, We Fathers of Mercy have the house custom, what's called a house custom in religious life, of keeping all 52 Fridays of the year uh, meatless Fridays, of course, unless a solemnity falls on one of those Fridays, and we treat it as a solemnity. Uh, For members of the Latin Catholic Church, it is the Latin rite, the norms on fasting are obligatory from age age 18 until age 59. Uh, When fasting, a person is permitted to eat one full meal as well as two smaller meals that together are not equal to that one sustaining full meal. Uh, The norms concerning abstinence from meat are binding upon members of the Latin Catholic Church from age 14 onwards. So even people over 59 are called to abstain from meat on the appropriate days. And members of the Eastern Catholic churches uh, of the 23, I believe it is, Eastern rites observe the particular law of their own individual sui uris churches, which is simply uh, the Latin phrase for their individual rite churches. If possible, the fast on Good Friday is continued until the Easter vigil on Holy Saturday night as the great Paschal feast, huh? To honor the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus and to prepare ourselves to share more fully and to celebrate more readily his resurrection. Very, very important. So I want to give some ways of fasting here, Jack, that I think are important from Pope Francis in the words of Pope Francis, and this is available as a blog, as is the next one I'm going to read as well. This one's titled, Do You Want to Fast This Lent? in the words of Pope Francis. Fast from hurting words and say kind words. Fast from sadness and be filled with gratitude. Fast from anger and be filled with patience. Fast from pessimism and be filled with hope. Fast from worries and have trust in God. Fast from complaints and contemplate simplicity. Fast from pressures and be prayerful. Fast from bitterness and fill your hearts with joy. Fast from selfishness and be compassionate to others. Fast from grudges and be reconciled fast from words, and be silent so you can listen." So do you want to fast this Lent? There's some non-food product ways of fasting right there from our Holy Father. And then I titled this, Try a Different Approach to Fasting this Lent. Lent and fast have a tendency to be oriented toward giving up things like food, television, or coffee, and this is a good thing, but there may be other creative ways that we can welcome Jesus's healing touch into our lives this Lent. And here are some suggestions you may want to consider. Uh, from the word among us, I received this article, and I adapted it a little bit to this prop- appropriate scripture quote. Uh, Fast from anger and hatred. Give your family members an extra dose of love and attention each day. Pray seven glory bees, for example, to honor the blessed Trinity for the specific intention of growing in the virtue of charity. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 it tells us the following. Strip away everything vicious, everything deceitful pretenses, jealousies, envy, slander, and disparaging remarks of any kind. So there you have it. Fast from anger and hatred. Number two, fast from judging others. For example, before making subjective judgments about others or situations, for we have the right to judge objectively, of course, recall how Jesus overlooks our own faults and constantly welcomes us back to his divine mercy, God's greatest attribute, according to the Church Fathers. Luke 6.37 states, quote, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned forgive and you will be forgiven. So there you have it. Number two, fast from judging others. Number three, fast from discouragement, huh? Whether at home or at work, hold on to God's promise that he has a perfect plan for your life and pray for an increase of hope, one of the three theological virtues along with faith and charity. In Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. 11, I love this passage from the Old Testament, Jack, the Lord God tells us, quote, "...for I know well the plans I have for you," says the Lord, "...they are plans for good and not for disaster." They are plans to give you a future and a hope. So there you go, fast from discouragement. Number four, fast from complaining. When you find yourself uh, about to complain about something, especially to the point that it will disrupt your personal peace, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and recall some of the little and larger moments of joy that Jesus has given you throughout your life. The third letter of John, verse 11, states, Do not imitate an evil example, but follow always what is good. Whoever does what is good is of God. And Philippians 4, verses 4 and 5, states, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Everyone should see how unselfish you are. We should note well, too, Jack, that both Lent and Advent, thus, each give us a Rejoice Sunday. Laetare Sunday in Lent and Gaudete Sunday in Advent, so our Lord and His Bride the Church, liturgically speaking, must want us to put some emphasis on hope in our daily lives, right? Because our lives revolve around the sacred liturgy. Uh, Number five, fast from resentment, bitterness, and fighting and or quarreling. Work on forgiving those who may have hurt you in the past, whoever they might have been, family, friend, or stranger. Romans 13 verses 13 and 14 states, "'Let us live honorably as in daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, no, not in quarreling and jealousy, no, rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have it, number five, fast from resentment, bitterness, fighting, and or quarreling. And number six, the end of our list here, fast from spending too much money, especially in a day and age of inflation during 2023. Try to reduce your overall spending especially on frivolous things, and give these financial savings to the poor in equal amount, if you can. Proverbs 19.17 teaches us, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord at the same time, and he will reward them for what they have done for the poor. So again, number six, fast from spending too much money. So there you have it, some ways to try a different approach to fasting this Lent, Jack, and also uh, words from Pope Francis on different ways we can fast. So my point here with the springboard topic is that there's different ways to fast that are positive doings of things as opposed to only negatives giving up of things. There's also ways to fast that are non-food related, okay? And we've just heard so many of them from Pope Francis's list and from my list that I've helped... uh, adapt to some scripture passages. Uh, The article is originally uh, from the Word Among Us. So uh, just uh, two great lists um, to guide us during this Lenten season in regards to fasting. Uh, We can take on what are called some uh, non-traditional approaches to fasting, which is what these are, as opposed to the more traditional attempts of fasting, which are, you know, the giving up of the coffee, the giving up of the ice cream, the giving up of the coffee ice cream, that's very heroic right there, Uh, and whatever else one might traditionally give up for Lent, uh, you can do for Lent in a mode of fasting as well.
1: Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. We're not going to be taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: You know, EWTN's religious catalog is your online destination for gifts and holy reminders for Lent and Easter. Buy Catholic shop, EWTNRC.com today, and... You can receive regular emails from EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. But we do have a caller that is held over from a previous live show, and we wanted to give her the opportunity to talk to Father Wade. Debbie is a first-time caller in San Bernardino County, California, listening on Sirius XM channel 130. Debbie, thanks for holding your on with Father Wade. Good afternoon, Father.
3: I have a question regarding relics. I um, I am a jewelry and rosary maker, and occasionally I go to a gem fair where there is a booth where a woman who um, is a French extraction, she shops a lot in France to bring home, bring back relics and other things. She often has relics for sale. She doesn't sell them as relics, there is no um, paperwork to go with them, but she has identified them as um, relics of a particular saint. I purchased two of them, simply because I didn't want them falling into the wrong hands, so to speak, And my priest suggested that I need to talk to someone who is familiar with canon law in regard to relics, and I don't know to whom I should speak. Can you help with that? Yeah,
2: okay. So, so let me, let's back up a little bit. I, I'm kind of curious about this, this woman um, who sells relics. So first of all, she's doing wrong. If they are relics, she's doing very wrong. I got a very simple question for you. Is she selling them somehow embedded or attached to the jewelry article like a necklace? Or is she selling them in their own individual little reliquary? Like you would see inside they of are. a church behind, behind a, a glass cabinet you would see in a church. How is she selling them? In what mode is she selling them?
3: The relics that I have seen and I have purchased are made at, to be worn as pendants. One yeah. of them has a little sliding top and that has the relic inside, and the other one is just a medallion with an embedded relic of just a third-class piece of cloth on the back. It is, and they're made of sterling silver.
2: Okay. Well, third-class relics you can have on your person. That's when a uh, 100% wool or 100% cotton cloth is touched to a first or second-class relic. First-class relic is something actually of the body of the individual who's been beatified or canonized. Like you touch you t- the the lock of hair or the bone ship is the first-class relic. The second-class relic is something the beatified or canonized person owned, like their desk or their habit or whatever. And a third-class relic is 100% wool cloth or 100% cotton cloth that is touched to uh, a first-class relic, definitely, and I believe also touched to a second-class relic. It also becomes a third-class relic. So there's only three classes of relics. To my knowledge, the only one that you can wear on your person is the third class relic, the the cloth that's been touched to the first class relic. Okay, and I believe also when it's touched to a second class relic, it's also a third class relic. Um, but definitely to the first class, at least uh, the cloth is touched to to become a third class relic. So. Uh, That's the first thing I want to make clear for the benefit of our listeners. You should not be wearing a a first- or second-class relic of a saint on your person. Those belong only in bona fide parishes and shrines. Now, it is true that the paperwork can be separated sometimes from uh, a a relic, but a relic is always, always in its own individual reliquary. So the fact that this woman slips the so-called relic, first, second, or third class, in some type of a pendant. She has it in a little a little unit where the unit slides into the pendant, so you can wear the pendant on your upper chest, pinned to your clothes, or whatever. That just doesn't sound right, uh, and chances are it's a fake relic, uh, because relics, per se, are always in their own reliquary, or multiple relics are in their own reliquary. You don't see them embedded in jewelry units that slide into other jewelry units like a pendant. So I I would question the authenticity of these so-called quote-unquote relics that she's selling. Number two, if they are relics, she should not be selling them. That And I would give her a witness next time you see her. You obviously can't control her, but you can surely witness to her, and then the the, the ball is in her court. She can do what she wants in regards to her conscience. Um, but you've done your part. You can meet your Maker on, on your judgment day and say, Lord, I, I did my best to talk to that woman to explain to her that what she's doing is wrong. Relics be, belong in shrines, they belong in parishes. Even when relics travel, like St. Therese's uh, bones traveled parish to parish in the United States here several years ago from France. Even then, they are still attached to a bona fide shrine or parish that sets them out on official loan to be traveled for the veneration of the faithful, okay? Uh, So these are probably not relics. If they are, she should not be selling them. If they are relics, she should not be putting them in jewelry pieces or units. Uh, That's just wrong, and she needs to be witnessed to. And although relics can be separated from their original paperwork, Uh, If I found a relic without paperwork in an an official reliquary, I would simply give it over to a church or a religious order to be the caretaker of it and let the the parish church, the pastor, or the religious order, the superior general or, or mother superior, know that it doesn't have papers, but because it's in a bona fide reliquary, you're presuming it's authentic, it has the name written on it, and so you want to give it to a parish church or religious order for safekeeping. That's what I would do great question thank yeah, you so thanks, much debbie
1: we appreciate the question today again a special mailbag edition of ewtn's open line tuesday not taking your phone calls today uh jen is in seattle father and she says hello i'm curious about going on a retreat but know little about them are they for everyone what are the benefits who provides retreats and how do i find a good retreat
2: well jennifer and our Open Line Tuesday Archives, one of my springboard topics from a previous Tuesday uh, was about the benefits of an annual retreat, the benefits of an annual retreat, and how important that is, whether one be single, married, or a consecrated religious. The word retreat means to pull back from, right? Right. Uh, to pull back from, you're pulling back from your everyday life, and it's the the, um, the everyday life and and the monotony that it can be, and and so forth. And you're rejuvenating your spiritual batteries, right? So I have uh, two times we've talked about that in the past. Uh, on September twenty first of twenty twenty one, that was our springboard topic: the importance of making an annual spiritual retreat. Again, September 21st, 2021, and also October 11th, 2022, about uh, a year later, a little more than a year later, October 11th, 2022, The Importance of Making an Annual Spiritual Retreat. Also in my new book, A Catholic Essentials, A Guide to Understanding Key Church Teachings, where I have 81 short chapters um, from five different parent categories: morals, dogma, ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, and also moral uh, uh, the sacraments and liturgy. Um, 81 short chapters on 81 different points of church teaching from those five parent categories. One of them is, one of those 81 chapters, is the importance of making the annual spiritual retreat. So I encourage you to get Catholic Essentials as well as listen to the podcast of those two dates I just gave you to find out more about that. But religious orders give retreats. Uh, dio- dioceses, some dioceses own their own retreats, so it's a diocesan retreat center. Uh, just last month, a month and a half ago or so, I preached at the Immaculate Heart of Mary retreat center in Spokane, Washington. It was a lay men and lay women's retreat, combined men and women. Uh, that's a diocesan-owned retreat house, beautiful facility there on beautiful acreage. Then just this last weekend, I gave a men's retreat to 34 men at the Bethany Retreat House in Dixon, Tennessee, owned and operated by the Nashville Dominican Sisters. So in this second example that I'm giving you, you have an example of a religious order retreat house that serves as a source of income for their apostolate of preaching and teaching. So whether diocesan-owned, whether religious order-owned, there's also some Catholic retreat centers out there that are owned and operated by a board, like a board of directors, however it's with the bishop's permission. That's how you know it's a legitimate retreat house that gets in good, faithful priests and retreat masters that are in good standing with the church. But once you research a retreat house in your area, look at its schedule for upcoming retreats, and you'll see such things as men's retreats, women's retreats, young adults retreats, widow and widower retreats, father-son retreats, mother-daughter retreats, etc., priest retreats, uh, consecrated religious retreats. You'll see different retreats and, and discern which ones are in line with your state in life. If you're a wife and mother, maybe you want to take a a, a women's retreat, or more specifically, a a wife's retreat or or a mother's retreat, uh, a, a women's retreat for wives and mothers. So they'll spell out on their retreat schedule that's usually posted at least a full six months in advance of what retreats are coming up. But again, that word retreat means to pull back from. We're pulling back from our daily uh, grind, our daily hustle and bustle of whatever our state and life and vocation is, and we pull back. You know, we talk about the, the soldiers retreating from the front lines of battle. Well, they're either retreating because things are going bad and they got to retreat, or they're retreating because things are going good and they can afford to pull back a little bit. But regardless, they're pulling back. And that's what we're doing when you're taking a retreat. Maybe things are going good in your secular life. They're going really good. They're going well. Well, you still want to retreat, right? Maybe they're not going so good. Maybe they're going rough with the the fighting of of the culture and the society. Well, you still need a retreat. So there's different things that, that you... Different reasonings why you might want to take a retreat. But the fact is, a retreat means to pull back from. And that's what you're doing when you take that annual spiritual retreat. And I'm a huge advocate regardless of one's state in life, whether single or married or a consecrated religious or a widow or a widower, a high school student, university student, try to take an annual spiritual retreat. You can't, you will not be sorry. Hope
1: that helps you out! And did you tell them how they could get a hold of the Fathers of Mercy?
2: They can get a hold of the Fathers of Mercy by going to fathersofmercy.com to find out more about our community. For example, Jack, for those interested in a possible vocation, with an itinerant missionary preaching, active apostolate, and I'm often asked how we Fathers of Mercy got our start. Well, ultimately, from the havoc and destruction caused by the French Revolution, the Church's plight is really no different today than when our founder, Father Jean Baptiste Rozan, gathered a group of zealous priests to re-evangelize a spiritually devastated post-revolutionary France. Early in the 19th century, the Fathers of Mercy were founded to bring back the prodigal children of the French Revolution, to have them practice their Catholic faith once again with true and authentic freedom in their churches. Today our apostolate has not changed, for we seek to bring the mercy of God to the prodigal children of our own times, active Catholics, lukewarm Catholics, maybe Catholics who have abandoned their Catholic faith of baptism, and to all Christians we preach our one holy Catholic and apostolic Church. So go to FathersOfMercy.com to find out more about our community.
1: If there's not a Father of Mercy coming to a mission near you, you, if you have the means and the locale, you could actually go visit the Fathers of Mercy, couldn't you?
2: That's exactly right. Our chapel is open uh, just over 12 hours a day. It's open 12 and a half hours a day from 6.30 in the morning uh, till 7 p.m. at night when we wrap up our 6 to 7 p.m. confessions daily. Uh, And then also we have daily Mass at 7.30 in the morning, Monday through Saturday inclusive for the six weekdays, and on Sundays we have Mass at 10 a.m. We average about 25 to 30 people at our weekday Masses and about 150 to 170 on Sundays, depending on the season, Uh, for example vacation season with families and whatnot. But daily Mass, daily confessions from 6 to 7 p.m., the community morning holy hour that leads into Mass is held from 6.30 to 7.30 with the weekday Mass following. And then also, Jack, uh, on the evenings, we have 6 to 7 p.m. Confessions, as I said, with 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. Eucharistic Holy Hour.
1: Eight. Well, we're not going to give the phone numbers because today's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Uh, If you'd like to be part of a future Open Line program, just send us an email. That email address is openline. At EWTN.com. Scott writes in, Father Wade, can a non-Catholic believer recite the rosary? I have been doing so at lunch during my work week and when I can find a quiet place on the weekend for the past week with the intention of seeing my family come to Christ. I find it very fulfilling and feel my family is slowly being drawn in just this week of the rosary.
2: Wow, beautiful, Scott. What a great witness as a non-Catholic. Just a, a fantastic, fantastic witness question. What is the rosary, Scott, but focusing on the mysteries of Jesus Christ in our own life and the promises he makes to us for the eternal life in heaven with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, the joyful mysteries help us to learn the meaning, the virtues, and the trials of everyday family life precisely because they focus just on the Holy Family of Nazareth, the Annunciation, uh, the Visitation, the Nativity of our Lord, the Presentation of the Christ Child in the Temple, and the fifth Joyful Mystery, the Finding of the Child, Jesus in the temple after being lost for three days. Uh, The Luminous Mysteries, as they focus specifically on our Lord's three years of public life, His public ministry, help us to see how we must carry out our own Christian mission and apostolate while living in the midst of the modern world, again, whether single, married, or as consecrated religious. Uh, We see five mysteries all dealing with Jesus' public life, His baptism... Uh, in the Jordan, which is the event, per se, that inaugurated his three years of public ministry. His self-manifestation of his divinity at the wedding feast of Cana, wherein he performed his first public miracle. Uh, The proclamation of the kingdom of God and the call to conversion of hearts. And the transfiguration, the fourth luminous mystery. And the fifth luminous mystery, the institution of the Holy Eucharist in the upper room on the night of the arrest. The sorrowful mysteries teach us how to deal with the trials and sufferings of everyday life, Uh, The agony of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, the scourging at the pillar, the crowning with thorns, the carrying of the cross, and the fifth sorrowful mystery, the crucifixion and death of our Lord. And of course, the fourth set of mysteries, bringing us up to 20 now, the five glorious mysteries of the Rosary, these help us, Scott, to focus on the goal, I like to say, for which God has made us, namely our eternal salvation and life with Him forever in heaven, right? The resurrection of our Lord, the ascension of our Lord, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Mary and the apostles in the upper room. Uh, the assumption of the blessed virgin and the coronation of the blessed virgin as queen of heaven and earth what's given to mary is given to us but given to her in a preeminent way but saint paul says the crown awaits us too the the crown of 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 uh, eternal glory that does not wither he says athletes do all kinds of things right and and for what to win a, a crown of leaves that withers after 3 days but us christians a crown that is absolutely imperishable so mary's assumption and coronation is is just a promised made preeminently in her that at the same time is promised to us, uh, eventually to be body and soul in heaven and crowned. You know, there's a a great uh, excerpt from Pope Francis, Scott, where he tells us the rosary is meant for everybody precisely because it's, quote, a simple contemplative prayer for all accessible to all, great and small, the educated and those with little education. In the rosary, we turn to the Virgin Mary, the mother of our Lord, so that she may guide us to an ever-closing union with her son, Jesus, to bring us into conformity with him, to have his sentiments, and to behave like he did. Indeed, the most holy rosary, while we repeat the Hail Mary, which is a very scriptural prayer, we meditate on the mysteries of Christ's life event on the events of Christ's life, so as to know him and love him even more and even better. The rosary is an effective means for opening ourselves to the triune Godhead. And he also says this, Scott, Pope Francis, he says, Each time we pray the rosary, we are taking a step forward, a step forward towards the great destination of human life, heaven. How beautiful is that? So absolutely, Scott, a non-Catholic believer can recite the rosary, a non-baptized person can pray the rosary, and hopefully by doing so it will lead them to want to be baptized. Uh, Again, you say that doing so at lunch during your work week and when you can find a quiet place on the weekend uh, for the past week, it's given you great, great peace, so much so that you're seeing your family come to Christ through it. What a beautiful thing, huh? Uh, and again, I, th- I think it's important to note as well that the Rosary is a devotional prayer, both mental and focal, which honors the life of Jesus Christ preeminently, and the mysteries of our salvation obtained by Him. Uh, it, true, true enough, the Rosary also honors His Most Holy Mother, the Mother of God, who was so near to her Son throughout His sacred incarnation, His birth, His life, His death, and she was also involved with the birthday of the church at pentecost 10 days after his res- after his ascension to heaven which was 40 days after his resurrection right mary was present with the apostles and what is it then the 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 praying of of the beads the string beads in in their sets you know the our father the hail mary which is a very scriptural prayer from luke Um, and ending with the Hail Holy Queen, beginning with the Apostles' Creed, and having the joyful, the luminous, the sorrowful, and the glorious aspects of our Lord's life, and how those joyful, luminous, sorrowful, and glorious aspects uh, then affect our life, how our life melds with Christ's life, if you will. And then I just want to close with this, Scott. Uh, The rosary helps us uh, with ten things I like to say. Um, And I know Johnette, Jack's wife, just loves the rosary tremendously, and she would agree, she would concur with this wholeheartedly. Number one, the rosary helps us to focus on the life of Christ and the entire economy of salvation. Number two, The rosary helps us to break through the noise of daily life, precisely because it's a quiet, meditative prayer that is rote, huh? The same prayer said over and over again. Number three, the rosary helps us to develop a deeper devotion to the Bride of Christ, the Church, and the mysteries of our salvation, safeguarded by the Church. For example, through the seven sacraments, which the Church, the Bride of Christ, provides for us, huh? Uh, number four, the the rosary helps to strengthen the church and her many and varied apostolates, active religious orders, uh, contemplative religious orders, uh, families and family life, marriages and family life, uh, singlehood and singles living in the world, uh, proper work ethics, and so forth. Huh? Uh, the rosary, number five, strengthens our marriages and families and our personal lives. Number six, the rosary increases our prayer life and discipleship. Number seven, The rosary helps to bring about world peace. Think of the message of the rosary of Our Lady of Fatima to the three shepherd children in 1917, very prophetic, that the rosary would help bring about world peace. Number eight, I love this one, the rosary helps fight off evil and literal demonic influences. It helps to fight off evil and literal, not metaphorical, but literal demonic influences. The rosary helps to combat secular humanism and relativism, and the rosary helps us to become great, great St. Scots. So never, ever forget that. God bless you, and thank you for a great witness question today and to Open Line Tuesday. As a non-Catholic, we really, really appreciate your emailed-in question.
1: And again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. If you'd like to be part of a future show, you can send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Or you can dial our regular studio line, that's 833-288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Central Time, and uh, we will get uh, the opportunity to record your question and use it on a a show similar to this one. Let's take a listen now to one of those listener comment line calls.
3: My name is Terry, and I have a question for Father Wade Ministers. I would like to ask him something about it. Is Luke chapter 12. It is about the household of five, that means three. A father the divide against his son, son against his father, a mother against her daughter, and a daughter against her mother, and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. I was really aghast, and I don't really know exactly what, Jesus meant in that gospel.
2: Okay, thank you. Great question. Those scripture passages mean simply that life is messy. Life can be a messy reality. This is why we need God's grace, huh? So you might have a a family bickering about some moral issue, right? Uh, Some moral issue. You might have a family bickering over inheritance. You might have a family even... uh, fighting over the very existence of God. Maybe there's some atheists or atheists in the plural, and the, fa- the fighting of all places takes place at the Thanksgiving dinner table, huh? So life is messy, and we, needs God- we need God's grace to help keep us on the straight and narrow road, uh, straight to Him. Uh, we don't, we don't want to lose out on our salvation. You know, Philippians 2.12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and that fear is a filial fear, not a servile fear. And the truth is, uh, Jesus admits in the Gospels that uh, he will cause division. And these passages about family life, the mother against the daughter-in-law, the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law, the father against his son, the son against his father, is proof of that. Um, but we know he is a unifying force for those who seek pursue and embrace the truth. And that's what cannot be forgotten, is that we want to seek, pursue, and know the truth. So when the fighting does take place, I want to say this as well, we never ever want to amputate a loved one, that is to say, cut them off. But sometimes to preserve your peace, you do have to detach with love. You have to have a detachment, but never ever an amputation, right? Another thing you need to understand is sometimes boundaries are good things. Boundaries can be good things. If you have a particular relative who constantly, constantly wants to fight about the Catholic faith because they've left it, they know they've left it, in fact, they have publicly repudiated it. So whenever uh, the Thanksgiving dinner comes around, for example, they want to fight and argue about it. Well, and you're hosting that year, sometimes boundaries are good. Maybe uh, you won't invite him that year, but send him a beautiful, beautiful Thanksgiving card. Again, you never, ever want to amputate, but you do have a right to detach with love, and you also have a right to set up boundaries, because you want to pursue the truth and share the truth with others, but they got to work out their own salvation, going back to Philippians 2.12. They got to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, and hopefully that'll be a filial fear and not a servile fear. The servile fear is is a fear of punishment master under slave, so, so to speak, the fear of a punishment coming. But the filial fear is the fear of a son or daughter who doesn't want to disappoint precisely because they know the parent loves them. That's a filial fear from the Latin filius, which means son, or colloquially it means son or daughter or child, right? So uh, we want to have a filial fear of God, not a servile fear of God. The other thing I want to talk about here in, in wrapping this up, about uh, family dissensions and family infighting and so forth when it comes to Christ and His teachings specifically, is uh, when we give fraternal correction, we need to do it privately, charitably, and rarely. This is a teaching from St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, He says, whenever we give fraternal correction, we want to do it privately, charitably, and rarely. Privately, so as not to embarrass the person in front of other people. Charitably, because charity demands it as the queen of the virtues. And rarely, because they're an adult. They got to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, right? But then he also gives us the very definition of fraternal correction. He says, fraternal correction is an attempt, an attempt. Notice he doesn't call fraternal correction a successful endeavor. It is not a successful endeavor. It can be a successful endeavor, but he doesn't call it that up front. He calls it an attempt. He says, fraternal correction is an attempt to bring back a loved one, back around to the fullness of truth, a loved one who has strayed from the truth. Fraternal correction is an attempt to bring back a loved one, back around to the fullness of truth, a loved one who has strayed from the truth. And to do that, we do it privately, charitably, and rarely. Privately, so as not to embarrass the person in front of other people. Uh, uh, charitably, because charity is, is the queen of the virtues. And uh, rarely, because they're an adult right? Uh, they got to work out their own salvation, and that's important uh, to remember. So we want to follow those three guideposts, those, those three hallmarks of fraternal correction. Uh, so to qu- quote what it is you're asking about, uh, Jesus says in Luke 12, the father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law, right? Uh, So there you have it, and uh, uh, we want to make sure that that we don't fall into that trap. But if we do, we have the right to detach with love if we can't make headway charitably, and we have the right to have boundaries that are in place, but they need to be boundaries of love, boundaries uh, that do not amputate. Great question. Thank you so much.
1: Got an email here from Thomas, and he says, Dear Father Manizas. I was on a program on a previous Tuesday and asked you why there would be guardians at God's throne in heaven. I mentioned that I had read this in St. Faustina's diary, but I could not reference it when I called you. The subject paragraph is paragraph 781 found in notebook 2 of her diary. My thinking is that because God knows everything, and if he does not want something or somebody in heaven, that something or somebody is not going to be there. My further thinking is that guardians at God's throne are the cherubim with flaming swords uh, are her images to make a point, just as the pearly gates, quote-unquote, are used to describe the entrance to heaven. Am I thinking correctly?
2: I'd say you're partly thinking correctly. You don't mention anything in your question, Thomas, as a statement on your part um, about angels simply adoring God angels simply surrounding the divine and heavenly throne. Uh, I want to quote the diary of St. Faustina, particularly what you just made reference to, number 781. She says this, um, O love, O queen, Uh, love knows no fear. Okay, so she's calling love, the greatest of the three theological virtues, a queen. Okay? O love, O queen, love knows no fear. And I just talked about the difference between filial fear and servile fear with the previous uh, emailer's question, or caller's question, excuse me. "'O love, O oh queen, love knows no fear. It passes through all the choirs of angels that stand on guard before his throne. It will fear no one. It reaches God.'" In other words, it passes through his angels. It reaches God as in and is immersed in him as in its sole treasure. This is why we say God is love, right? The cherubim who guards paradise with flaming sword has no power over love. Oh, pure love of God, how great and unequaled you are. Oh, if souls only knew your power. So in this little paragraph of 781, she's acknowledging that love is a queen. Love can pass through the angels guarding God's throne and penetrate straight into God because God is love, is what she's saying. And then God espouses a pure love outwardly. She says, Oh, pure love of God, how great and unequaled you are. Only if soul, Oh, if only souls knew your power, souls would be more comforted if they knew God's love. But some see God as a wrathful God. The last thing they see is his love. This all reminds me of a great quote by St. John of the Cross, the great Carmelite mystic. Now, now listen to this quote. It's an oxymoron. He says, Love is the only thing that can capture and bind God. Love is the only thing that can capture and bind God. And that's what St. Faustina is telling us here in this number 781 of her diary. But the quote itself is from St. John of the Cross. Love, the greatest of the theological virtues, and God himself is love. Love is the only thing that can capture and bind God. Now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is Father Wade talking now. You're talking, God is pure spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three divine persons and one God, one God and three divine persons. You mean to tell me you can somehow capture God, sit him down on a chair, and bind him with cords and ropes? Yeah, you can with love because God is love, and that love that that we're called to mold our own love after His love, because we let His love first meet us, first penetrate our beings, we then are able to give love to others. Love is the only thing that can capture and bind God, St. John of the Cross. And and this is what St. Faustine in her diary, paragraph number 781, is trying to tell us. That, O oh love, O oh queen, who knows no fear, you pass through all the choirs of angels that stand on guard before God's heavenly throne because you fear no one. You go through them and you reach God and you become immersed in him as its sole treasure, as God's sole treasure. The cherubim who guards paradise with flaming sword has no power over you. O oh pure love of God, how great and unequaled you are. Oh, if souls only knew of your power. That's pretty powerful. So that those are the themes that I would say, uh, Thomas, that we need to look at, that God is love, that love uh, penetrates God, God sends back that love out to individuals, and we're called to share that love with others. And love is a true, authentic love. The greatest of the three theological virtues is afraid of no one. Great question. Thank you so much.
1: Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls.
3: Yes, my name is Brenda, and I'm from Trinidad, Colorado. And I was just stating, you know, I know being brought up for Advent, it was not a big deal. They used to buy us things all year round. So we were lucky if we got one gift. And now I raised my kids like that. And now they just so materialistic. Well, how do you get them to change?
2: Yeah, good question. We can grow up very, very material- materialistic, especially those of us living in the West. You know, I, I still remember being a teenager and watching the visit of Mikhail Gorbachev and his wife Raiza walking on the sidewalks of downtown Manhattan. And he was walking with President Reagan and Nancy Reagan, the two couples side by side. And while the four of them are walking side by side, Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan, and Mikhail Gorbachev are all uh, clearly in conversation with each other, but not Raiza. Raiza's head is totally tilted upward, looking left, then right. Left, then right. Left, then right. Purely an amazement of this Western culture, this Western world, okay? And we can become very materialistic. Now, I'm not saying she was wrong in having those thoughts. I, b- I believe she was in awe in a good way, okay? I believe she was in awe in a good way. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying is when we have the gift, we should not take advantage of the gift. And, and we, those of us living in the West, Americans can become very, very materialistic, very, very um, wanting of things, greedy, uh, and so forth. So much so that once practicing greed, we can actually end up practicing the opposite extreme of greed, which is wastefulness and being very, very wasteful. Think of all the food that's thrown out, for example, that goes bad or that's not eaten in a restaurant. Um, And so the median virtue found halfway between um, greed and wastefulness is generosity. We we need to have a generous spirit towards things, so not be so greedy that I don't want to loan it out to others, but not be so wasteful that I want to throw it out before giving it to another, right? So... St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that the median virtue found halfway between greed and wastefulness, greed is also known as avarice, the median virtue found halfway between greed and uh, uh, or avarice and wastefulness is generosity, having a generous spirit. So I would say in the moral life, this is the best way to overcome materialism, is to be generous, have a generous spirit uh, to not want to... Um, be so greedy, have a generous spirit of not wanting to be so wasteful. One of the things I like to recommend to people during Lent, which this liturgical season is the one we're in right now, Lent, while you're hearing this broadcast of this mailbag show of Open Line Tuesday, is to go through your home, your closets, your drawers, uh, household items, uh, clothing items, uh, maybe some food products that you have an abundance of, certain canned goods that still have a good date on them. Give these things, whether food products or household items or products uh, or clothing items, give them to a Catholic charity like St. Vincent de Paul or to a non-denominational charity, uh, or, or a secular charity like Goodwill. Uh, you feel good about yourself giving, at the same time you don't have an attachment to things, and that's a great, great reality as well. But I would say to focus on the virtue of generosity. Remember, each of the seven capital sins has an opposite extreme, right? Well, the opposite extreme of uh, greed or avarice is wastefulness, and, and we don't want to be that way, nor do we want to be greedy. Great question, thank you so much. A great question, by the way, especially during this liturgical season of Lent, where we want to focus on not being so materialistic. So fantastic question.
1: Um, you know, we've been bringing you the Rosary here at EWTN Radio twice a day for over 25 years. You can tune in every morning at 5:30 a.m. Eastern for Mother Angelica and the Sisters, or you can turn in every evening, tune in rather, every evening at 9:30 p.m. Eastern, uh, and you can hear Father Benedict Groeschel and Simonetta only here on EWTN. Radio. Father Wade, we had a question in a previous uh, episode that came in from one of our YouTube uh, listeners who wanted to know, what is RCIA?
2: Oh, great question. It stands for Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. It's the program officially set up through the diocese um, where catechumens, that is, non-Catholics, whether not even yet baptized, so they're not only non-Catholics, they're non-Christians, or possibly a Protestant who wants to enter the Catholic Church and already has a valid baptism in their Protestant faith, can come in to receive the remaining two sacraments of initiation, which would be Confirmation and Holy Eucharist. So RCIA, they receive either all three sacraments of initiation baptism, confirmation, Holy Eucharist. That's if they're not baptized, or there's uncertainty about their Protestant baptism, for example, if it was done in the proper Trinitarian formula. But if they have that certitude that their baptism was valid from their Protestant faith, then all they have to do is receive the other two sacraments of initiation, confirmation and Holy Eucharist. Well, the RCIA program is the program that takes in these so-called catechumens, the non-Catholics. But they're entering the Catholic Church, and they will do so at the Easter Vigil. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners during this Lent and always, and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host,
1: Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.